0: Hey, Blackhawk, it is good to worship together today. If we haven't met, my name is Ben, and I am on the staff team here at Blackhawk, one of the pastors working with our middle school and high school ministry, helping to put together the groups and events and volunteer teams that, uh, that serve our middle school and high school students. So that makes me a religious professional. Duh! So there you go. So and uh, and as a religious professional, I have friends who get a paycheck from lots of different kinds of churchy or religious roles. So besides. Church work. I have friends who are missionaries, those who are uh, teachers or professors, uh, professional counselors, nonprofit organization leaders, friends who are prophetic activists on a much, much smaller scale than the late Dr. King. A very blessed holiday weekend to everybody. My family is going to Atlanta for spring break. So excited to see this. Civil Rights Museum and other things there. And I also have friends who are chaplains. Now, if you're not familiar, a chaplain is someone who provides spiritual care within the context of an institution or organizations. So there are chaplains at uh, hospitals, in the military, with uh, many sports teams, and even some uh, schools and businesses have uh, chaplains. There are folks who call Blackhawk Church their church home who work as uh, chaplains. They do great work serving the mission of the organization where they work. A chaplain serves the mission of the organization. A chaplain is never somebody at the top of the org chart. Someone up there has decided, you know, it would be good for us to provide spiritual care for folks. That would actually serve our mission. An article on the U.S. Army website puts it well, it says this, chaplains will never be Commanders they do hold rank and the authority granted by that rank, but they'll never have command authority. So the proper title for a chaplain is always chaplain, not captain or general, simply chaplain. A chaplain is not at the top of the org chart. And similarly, there's no career path from chaplain to the top of the org chart. You'll... you'll, (laughs) you'll never be in a hospital where they'll ask the chaplain whether a patient needs surgery, right, okay? <laughs> or, or let's imagine that we were all fans of the same sports team. Let's say we're all fans of a professional pickleball team, maybe. I don't know. And, and the beloved head coach of our team, she is retiring, and the team owner has called a press conference to introduce us to the new head coach. And they say, we're so excited to introduce you to someone who has been with our organization for years and we're all super excited. And then they say, yes, we're, we're promoting from within. It's the former team chaplain who's the new head coach. And we're like, What? oh my goodness, we're getting on our group chat and we are complaining, like, what is happening? Like, you don't promote team chaplain to head coach. It doesn't make sense. The roles of the person in charge versus the person who call who's like providing spiritual care, those are two separate roles in our world. We're in a series uh called Live This Book, where we are tracing major story threads through the Bible. And today we come to the point in the story where God puts someone at the top of the org chart for his people and he picks somebody who does not have the traditional credentials for the job. And the results are interesting. Before we jump into the story, let me give a special welcome to different groups of people. And those of you who are live here in the room, you can join me in uh, welcoming everybody else. Why don't we clap for everybody who's joining online. Uh, A special shout out to any snowbirds who are watching online. If you're listening to the podcast and if you're at any of our other sites and venues. A special welcome to anyone who's brand new this week, whether you're live here in the room or anyone else. Come and find somebody. Say hi. Come and uh, introduce yourself, whether you're new this week or you're relatively new. We would love to meet you at the info desk at your site, your venue host, anybody. So we've identified seven movements in this Live This Book series that tell the story of the Bible all the way from God's creation at the beginning to a time in the future yet to come when God will accomplish his mission fully. And this Sunday is the last Sunday, in the third movement of the story, God chooses a people. God has a mission on planet Earth, and in his aim to accomplish his mission, he has called a people who will be his partners in this mission. And this movement takes place between multiple lands. Let's take a look at a map here. It starts with a man named Abraham who is coming from off the map and moves into this territory. Three generations later, his family emigrates uh, to Egypt in the midst of a famine. And then the descendants of that family are eventually enslaved in Egypt, and God rescues them. He saves them from this oppression, and they escape Into the wilderness. And here in the wilderness, God gives them a document that will shape their culture as a people. It's uh, the law. And with that law, He is getting ready to send them back into the land. And this arrow, the sending back into the land, this is where our story starts. Because as God is giving the people, Uh, the law, he anticipates a time that is coming once they enter the land, when they will ask him for a king. Today, we are pulling the thread of kingship that runs through the Bible. Now, just a note here, I have never asked God for a king that could help us fight our battles against our neighbors in Minnesota. It's just nothing that I've ever done. I can't, I can't relate. Most of us who can hear my voice have never been citizens of a nation with a queen or king. When it comes to royalty, we don't bend the knee. We bring the popcorn. Popcorn. We find stories about royalty, or at least I do, I find these stories really entertaining and fascinating. Real stories, fictional stories, they're they're very interesting. But I'm not particularly interested in having a, a king to whom I would owe allegiance. And I'll also say, my my family, we used to live in a country with a king, Spain, and it's even more complicated there in terms of the relationship with royalty. So for anyone who can hear my voice, there is tension for us today as we jump into a story where God establishes a monarchy and says, Thumbs up. This is this is a good idea. There's there's tension for us in that. As we pull this story thread, there's a lot. There are entire books, multiple uh, in the Bible, devoted to this theme. So, don't feel like you have to remember or catch every single detail. Just catch what you can. And enjoy your popcorn as the story follows along. We are, uh, we are, remember, starting the story with the people in the wilderness getting ready to enter the land. And God gives them this law in Deuteronomy 17. He says this. When you enter the land that Yahweh, when you see Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name in the Old Testament, Yahweh. The land Yahweh your God is giving you, you've taken possession of it, you've settled in it, and you say, let's set a king over us like all the nations around us. Hey, be sure to appoint over you a king Yahweh chooses. He must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, Must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. God is trying to protect them from a certain type of king. The text continues. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere Yahweh his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time Over his kingdom in Israel. Okay, three observations from this passage. The people are going to ask for a king. The king is supposed to submit to the same law as the people. You don't want a king who thinks of himself as above the law. Get the king that I, Yahweh, will choose for you. And then if you do that, his kingdom is going to last a long time. As the story unfolds, uh, the people enter the land, and for a few generations, they have these leaders, uh, commonly known as judges. Uh, They're neither, judge isn't really the right word, but they're also not kings. They're they're these leaders that have partial authority. And the judges, they're a mixed bag. Ugh. If you read the last three chapters of the book called Judges, it's revolting. I'll I'll spare you uh, the details, but the very last line of the book is this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone has become a law Unto themselves. Everyone is trying to become the true and authentic version of themselves without any shared frame of reference or authority. And, and it's a wreck. They they treat each other like absolute garbage. Without a king, something is missing. But then when they finally ask for a king, it's something is still off. Let's continue the story. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, one of the leaders and prophets at Ramah. And they said to him, hey, you're old. Tact, that's good. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now Samuel appoints a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So so he prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh told him, listen to what the people are saying. It's not you they've rejected, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel does this. He gives them this warning, and it's an ugly warning And the most repeated word in the warning is take. The king will take, he will take, he will take this, he'll take that. But even so, the Israelites, they they want a king to fight their battles for them. And so that's what happens. God gives them a king. And if you've brought your popcorn to the next few books of the Bible, and you're wondering what kind of show you're about to get, what kind of story you're about to read, the closest modern-day parallel might be something like, I don't know, Game of Thrones. It's like not rated PG, and there are no real heroes in the story. The first king of Israel is a guy named... Saul. And this is the guy who looks the part. He has the royal credentials, but he is not a hero. And he is not the guy. It's funny. The the name Saul in Hebrew actually means something like, well, Israel, you asked for it. (laughs) (laughs) Learning Hebrew, one of the most fun things is figuring out what the names of the Bible be. So anyway, this guy, he's not the guy. But the second king of Israel, this is the one who lacks the traditional credentials. A typical king would be firstborn in the family. This guy is the youngest of eight brothers professionally he 's from the working class he 's a, a shepherd he 's also a poet and a musician none of that screams king his name is david. david that's right and he's the closest thing in this story that we get to a hero gosh he really has some heroic moments it turns turns out that being a shepherd was decent prep for the role of king, because you see, shepherd, shepherd is a combo role. A shepherd is both a caregiver and a commander. You you protect the sheep, you you bind their wounds, but you also tell them what to do and where to go. David has some real heroic moments. <laughs> but <laughs> We could also do an entire month of sermons just on evil stuff David did. Is <sighs> One of the most colorful and lesser-known stories uh, surrounds his first wife, it's a, a woman named Michael. Um, Michael was the daughter of King Saul, and she loved David genuinely. But after a while, her dad is no longer a fan of David. So he remarries her off to another man. And then when Saul dies, David says, that's that's my wife, I'm I'm taking her back. with, With her second husband just weeping. And later they get into a fight about religion, which everyone knows is super fun in any marriage. So. And in the midst of their fight, David insults her dead dad. And then the last line of that story is this. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Most likely what's happening in this line is that David has rejected Michael and he is refusing to sleep with her, both out of spite, but also because he doesn't want any of Saul's grandchildren claiming rights to the throne. classy guy. So, Four more observations about God's people and kings. Life without a king, really bad. Everyone does as they see fit. The people had rejected God as their king. Yet even so, in his grace, God responds to their desire and he appoints a shepherd as king, but still still a mixed bag life with the wrong kind of king is it's just a different kind of bad honestly it feels like the whole idea of human kingship is just not a good idea and yet in the very next story right after david fights with michael and rejects her god goes all in on David's monarchy and the royal line of his descendants. God says, this this is the plan. No. (laughs) It it all starts with with a moment when David's looking around at his new house that one of the neighboring kings had, had built for him as a gift, his palace. And he's like, well, I've got a house. How come God doesn't have a house? Like a temple. And God says, well, that's, that's interesting, David. I, I, didn't, I didn't ask for a house, but, but let's, let's, let's work on something together. And so this, this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan. So tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God has been the primary actor in David's life leading up to this point, And now he's going to continue to be the primary character in David's life moving forward into the future. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And here we are, 3,000 years later, and we're still talking about David. That seems like that won't happen. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home for their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not Oppress them anymore. For God, there seems to be a connection between making David's name great and this sense of security, these benefits for God's people. They'll be planted. They'll have a home. Wicked people will no longer oppress or disturb them. For God, there's a connection between monarchy and security, between command and care. God continues. Next verses. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. What's the name of of David's son who becomes king after him? Say it if you know it. Solomon. Solomon, that's right. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Solomon builds God's temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him. Okay, God just said a lot of big things. Here are a few of the things God just said. The king provides security and freedom from oppression for the people like a good shepherd. His kingdom will reign forever. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, God said the kingdom's going to last a long time, but now God is going all in on the house of David. And when he does wrong, God is not surprised by the failings of the kings, David, Solomon, or any of the others. And he is willing to hold the powerful accountable. And yet his love will never be taken away from the house of David. This is remarkable stuff here. But as the story unfolds, there's a problem. You see, uh, God says all of this in approximately the year ten ten BC, and the books of Samuel and Kings. This is four books in our Bible, and uh, but it covers a, a period of time with one story that ends around the year five seventy. BC. And the way the story unfolds from here to there basically looks like this a bunch of bad kings, a couple bright spots thrown in there, here and there. And at the end of the story, there is no king in Jerusalem. David's royal line. Has been cut off. It looks really unlikely that God is going to be able to fulfill this promise. And so over the next few centuries, God's people are wondering what is going to happen next. What will God do in order to fulfill this promise? Is is He going to give us a king again from David's line? And gosh, here's a question that I would have. Like, should we even want that? I mean, the kings were a mess. And so 600 years later, a man descended from David or claiming to be, stands up and says this. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when you and I hear these words, this phrase, it sounds super religious to us. Am I right? Like, this just sounds very religious. And the reason for that is because these have become religious words over the past 2,000 years. Kingdom of God, this is super churchy. Repent, well, it's the last time you heard anyone in a non-religious context use the word repent. Give me a break. Believe, very churchy word. Good news, super churchy. All this just screams religion and church. But when we read the Bible as a story, when we, we've pulled this thread of kingship from the beginning, we see something different here. The, the kingdom of God, is, is this guy talking about an actual kingdom? Is he, is he claiming to be a king? Each of these phrases that sound religious to us, kingdom of God, repent, believe, good news, all of that in the original context to the ears of the first hearers of those words, it would have sounded like royal propaganda, royal propaganda. The phrase translated as believe the good news is pistuete ento euangelio. And this is a phrase in the Roman Empire that you might have heard after a king has conquered new territory. They send a messenger to your town who would say, hear ye, hear ye this good news. You have a new king. It's time to bend the knee. And so the idea of pistuete is not just to believe intellectually, but it is to give faith towards this new king, or fealty, to pledge your loyalty, your allegiance to the king. The idea of repent, turn from your former allegiances, and give allegiance to this kingdom. So let's put ourselves in the sandals of those original listeners. You and I, we're we're standing there. 30-year-old guy, working-class guy, claims to be the son of David, gets up in public, and he says this. What are you th- what are you thinking After everything you know about the history of your people and the kings and the mixed bag that they were and 600 years since you know, I, I don't know what I'm thinking Man, I am bringing my popcorn. There is going to be a good show. I'm really curious what kind of like gossip and drama is going to swirl around this guy who's claiming to be the king. But like, uh, pistuete ento euangelio? Give allegiance to this good news? Uh, spare me. I don't know. I'm not interested. <laughs> I know what kings are like. He will take, he will take, he will take. (laughs) This is going to have to be a very different kind of king for allegiance to make any sort of sense. And that's if this guy is the son of David, as he claims. For my part, (laughs) give me liberty or give me, well, not death, don't kill me, just leave me alone. Well, it turns out Jesus is the son of David. The royal house has been remade, but with significant changes from the time of David and Solomon and all the rest. His kingdom is not of this world. Earthly kings take and take and take. This king gives and gives and gives. Earthly kings act like they are above the law. This king submits himself to God's law. Earthly kings are a hot mess most days and a mixed mess bag at best this king is pure of heart he is the king who truly acts like a shepherd he defends the poor he heals the sick he proclaims freedom for the captives Jesus is the reason that God has been pro-monarchy all along for the first time this royal announcement really is good news somebody say amen So let's put it all together. God's people have asked for a king. They will have a king from David's line forever. The king's role, they're supposed to submit to the same law as the people and provide security and freedom from oppression for the people like a good shepherd. God's people owe allegiance to this king. Remember, Without a king, everybody does as they see fit, and it's a mess. The human kings were a mixed bag, and so disillusionment comes in. Bend the knee? Allegiance? No thank you. It was just because God is the one true king that we needed all along. So the house of David falls. The promise seems hopeless until Jesus from the house of David, God in the flesh is the shepherd king forever. If Jesus is king, our proper response is to turn and give allegiance to him, to repent and give faith to this good news. But if that's god's invitation to us we have we have two problems first we we have a category problem because in our world the role of providing spiritual care and the role of calling the shots those are two different roles in our world that that don't come together. Chaplains and commanders are two different roles. That's a problem we have. But even if I'm able to get over that problem and bring those two roles together, I don't know about you, but I have a, I have a different problem. I'm not sure I want to bring them together. I, I kind of like calling my own shots. right? We see Jesus as the person who provides spiritual care for us. And I don't know, I'm interested in terms of calling the shots. I'm interested in my goals and my desires, my my little kingdom of me. (laughs) My allegiance is is to myself. Sometimes we don't want Jesus to be king. We want him to be chaplain. Chaplain. We ask him to bless our agenda and provide spiritual care centered on our own pursuit of happiness while we sit ourselves on the throne or put ourselves at the top of the org chart. I believe that I should do as I see fit. And if Jesus has other ideas well, I'm in charge and he's the chaplain, so. Jesus is the shepherd king. He is the one who brings together the role of caregiver and commander into one person. If we reduce his role to that of Chaplain, put ourselves at the top of the org chart and fail to bend the knee. We are ignoring reality. Y'all, we're a mixed bag. Sometimes I can be a hot mess. We need both a chaplain and a commander. Allegiance to Jesus, the shepherd king, is a gift that sets us free. Now, now look, allegiance to Jesus does not erase self, okay? God only made one you. He only made one of me. I am a unique individual, created in his image with experiences and interests and desires. And giving allegiance to King Jesus doesn't erase any of that. What it does is it puts self where self belongs, where I belong. As I seek to become the best version, the truest version of myself, will I define what that looks like? for myself, or will I allow Jesus to show me what that could look like? Taking Jesus, whom we've asked to be our chaplain, and recognizing his rightful role as the shepherd king, it doesn't remove self from the org chart completely. We become sort of like the the chief operating officer. I'm still running the daily business of my own life. In conversational partnership with God, I can walk into his throne room anytime and talk things through. But when it comes down to it, he's the king and I bend the knee. As we prepare to take communion together today, let this be a space where each one of us can sit with a question about allegiance in our own hearts and minds. In what area of my life have I asked Jesus to be my chaplain who serves my mission what would it look like to give him my allegiance in this area of life and how do I think that might set me free let me pray for us Jesus, thank you for coming as the one true good shepherd king. Lord, we declare that we bend the knee to you. We give faith. Help us in the areas of our unfaith you meet each person in the time and space that's provided here as we sit with you. Thank you that we can trust you to be a loving, caring, good, true, protective, self-sacrificial king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.